Hello, and today I have a treat for you. The host of several well-known podcasts, the charming Lindsey Graham of History Daily, American Scandal, and American History Tellers, is allowing me to share with you his coverage of the day that will live in infamy. Every weekday, host Lindsey Graham takes you back in time to explore a momentous moment that happened on this day in history. Whether it's to remember the tragedy of December 7, 1941, or to celebrate that 20th day in July, 1969, when mankind reached the moon. History Daily is there to tell you the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world, one day at a time. The people at History Daily strive to make the podcast fully immersive, with sound design, original music, and a narrative style meant to pull the listener in and truly experience history. It's a story, but informative, meant to educate, inspire, fascinate, and move. The following is their three-part story of the day Pearl Harbor was attacked. So sit back and enjoy. Prepare to be transported back to December 7th, 1941. It's November 26, 1941, on Etorafu Island on the northeast coast of Japan. Lieutenant Commander Sadao Chigusa stands on the deck of the destroyer Akigumu as snow falls gently from the sky. Chigusa is dressed in a heavy coat over his imperial uniform, but it does little to stave off the biting cold. A bugle sounds, and Chigusa stiffens his back as he watches his ship disembark from Hitokapu Bay along with the rest of the full strike fleet. Even through his white gloves, Chigusa's fingers are freezing. But he is starting to feel more optimistic about their mission now it has officially begun. He looks across at the other vessels as they sail away from this barren island and finds encouragement in the number and power of them. As he watches the frost-covered ships pull their anchors and follow each other out to sea, he marvels at the majestic sight. Along with the Akigumo, their fleet consists of eight more destroyers, two battleships, three cruisers, three submarines, seven oil tankers, and six aircraft carriers. Once the fleet has sailed far enough from port, the battleships fire test rounds back at the snow-capped island. Men cheer as impressive explosions burst along the unoccupied landscape they've left behind. Just three days earlier, along with most other officers, Chigusa was finally informed of the top-secret mission that this fleet has been assembled for. The news astounded him. It seemed impossible suicidal even. But Chigusa has since forced himself to overcome his doubts. Besides, he has no choice but to follow orders. The fleet has begun its two-week journey across the North Pacific toward the U.S. territory of Hawaii, over 3,000 miles away. Once close enough, they will carry out a mission so shocking that its consequences will be heard around the world. In a few days' time, on December 6, 1941, this fleet will make final preparations to launch a surprise attack on the U.S. Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily. History is made every day. 
On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is December 6th. The Japanese prepare. It's early January 1941, in the Japanese office of Admiral Isokuro Yamamoto, Commander-in-Chief of the Combined Imperial Japanese Fleet. It's 11 months before the attack on Pearl Harbor. Admiral Yamamoto sits at his desk, composing a letter in handwriting so beautiful that his subordinates often remark on it. In the letter, he outlines what he considers to be an equally beautiful plan, a preemptive strike against a country with whom Japan is not currently in conflict. Yamamoto writes with his right hand and steadies the paper with what remains of his left. Two of his fingers on his left hand were blown off when he was 20 years old during a war with Russia. Now he is 57. And as a result of his distinguished military career, he has garnered a well-earned reputation for bravery and strategic genius. Yamamoto enjoys extreme popularity among his men, both with the high-ranking officers and the lower-ranking sailors. He, in turn, thinks highly of them. In his letter, he praises their service to the emperor. His entire plan hinges on their courage, the determination and sacrifice of Japan's naval personnel, and he's confident they are up to the task. For many Japanese, the proposed attack that Yamamoto is planning is essential to protecting their country. The United States has remained largely neutral throughout the Second World War. Still, there are some that feel their involvement is inevitable and imminent. Japan is allied with the fascist countries of Germany and Italy, who are at war with Great Britain, America's principal ally. Furthermore, President Roosevelt has already implemented harsh trade sanctions on Japan and moved his Pacific fleet from the American mainland to the islands of Hawaii, ever closer to Japan. War with America seems unavoidable. And if that's the case, Yamamoto is preparing to strike first. Yamamoto knows that with their economic advantages, America would win a long, drawn-out conflict. So to secure victory over America, Japan must launch a large-scale surprise attack on America's Pacific fleet at Pearl Harbor. His letter proposes that a fleet of Japan's most powerful ships should be sent to Pearl Harbor to destroy the bulk of America's naval power in one swift and decisive blow. He wants Japanese airplanes to take off from aircraft carriers and swarm over the enemy ships in an airborne assault similar to the successful attacks the Germans have launched in Europe. He also wants submarines to penetrate the harbor and fire torpedoes at the American vessels. And he wants all of it to happen fast and soon. He writes that, if favored by God's blessing, such an opening gambit would destroy American morale and secure an early victory for Japan. As he lays down his pen, Yamamoto knows his scheme will be met with resistance from naval headquarters. There are many in the Imperial Japanese military who will tell him that his ideas are both impossible and unwise. He blows the ink dry and reads his three-page letter back to himself. It's a strong plan, he assures himself, and a necessarily aggressive one. Until recently, Yamamoto has been seen as a pacifist in Japan. But Yamamoto now understands the situation is unavoidable. Sealing the fine quality paper within an envelope, he then mails it to the Minister of the Navy. If his plan meets with any political resistance, he is prepared to offer his resignation. A month later, a copy of Yamamoto's highly classified letter is handed to one of the most famous fighter pilots in Japan, Commander Minoru Genda slices open the letter with a paper knife and reads the proposal. He served under Admiral Yamamoto eight years earlier, and they share similar ideas. They both firmly believe the aircraft carrier is key to future victory in combat. 
as he reads Yamamoto's impeccable handwriting. Genda finds himself agreeing with Yamamoto that if a war must be fought against America, then it must be won within six months. Surprise is the all-important factor. Over the coming weeks, Yamamoto and Genda work out the details. They decide that six aircraft carriers must be included in the fleet. This way, a two- or even three-wave attack can be achieved from the sky. And soon, Yamamoto's plan is authorized and put into motion. A highly powerful and top-secret fleet of ships will cross the Pacific, avoiding detection by the enemy. And by December 6, 1941, this fleet will position itself within striking distance of Hawaii, preparing to launch a devastating and unprecedented surprise attack. It's December 6, 1941, on the island of Oahu, Hawaii, one day before the attack on Pearl Harbor. A young, long-haired Japanese man in an unbuttoned Hawaiian shirt wakes up in bed in his tiny residence on the grounds of the Japanese consulate. He's exhausted and hungover again. His name is Tadashi Moramura, or at least that's what he tells people. Officially, he works in Oahu at the consulate, helping Japanese locals with their bureaucratic issues. But that's his cover story. His real name is Takio Yoshikawa, and he's a spy for the Japanese Imperial Navy. Yoshikawa's head is still stinging from the shots he downed in an American bar the night before. Making matters worse, someone is banging loudly on his front door. He hauls himself up, stumbles to the door, and opens it. The man standing on the other side is a clerk from the consulate. He's come by to collect Yoshikawa's daily report. Yoshikawa knows the clerk dislikes him for his drinking, his tardiness, his insubordination, not to mention the prostitutes he sometimes brings back to his residence. But Yoshikawa is also confident that he brings a lot to the table. The clerk may not like him, but he is fully aware that Yoshikawa's intelligence is extremely valuable, especially lately. For weeks now, the clerk has been pressuring Yoshikawa to gather information about any activity related to Pearl Harbor. Specifically, the Japanese intelligence services want to know what American battleships, aircraft carriers, cruisers, and other vessels are currently in port. They also want to know where these vessels are positioned. They're asking the right man. Yoshikawa is an expert in the habits of the U.S. Navy. He knows the names and details of every ship in Pearl Harbor and can provide his superiors in Tokyo a thorough and daily update of their comings and goings. His spying methods are simple. He takes a taxi past the fleet, pretending to be a sightseer, and studies Pearl Harbor from a nearby peninsula. To avoid suspicion, he never carries a camera, binoculars, or a notebook. All his reports are crafted from memory. This week, though, at the insistence of his Japanese handlers, he's taken to the skies. He rented a small airplane and has been observing the naval base from above. He even donned his bathing suit, dove into the harbor, and used a hollow reed as a breathing device to get a view from the water. Today, he informs the clerk that two of the U.S. Navy's most valuable aircraft carriers, the Enterprise and the Lexington, are not currently in port. The clerk scribbles down these details into his notepad. Yoshikawa can tell by his disappointed response that this isn't the news his superiors wanted to hear. Yoshikawa, of course, doesn't know the details, but he can tell something huge is about to happen. Lately, the clerk's questions have been specific and urgent. Yoshikawa is starting to suspect that some sort of attack upon Pearl Harbor is imminent. He hopes he can watch it from his favorite position on the peninsula with a beer in hand. 
Soon, the clerk leaves Yoshikawa and immediately takes the report back to his superiors. They, in turn, arrange for an encrypted message to be sent to the secret Japanese fleet out in the Pacific. This strike fleet is currently 230 miles north of Hawaii, close enough to launch planes should the order be given. The sailor hands Commander Genda the report that the spy Yoshikawa gave earlier today. Genda curses when he learns about the two carriers that are not moored in Pearl Harbor as expected. As far as he is concerned, the destruction of such dangerous vessels is the principal objective of the operation. But Genda still feels they are poised for a glorious victory. The same intelligence report also confirms that the rest of America's Pacific fleet lie awaiting their fate in Pearl Harbor. The Japanese strike force is now so close to Hawaii that the radio operators begin to pick up commercial stations from the islands. The carefree sounds of a ukulele and steel drums indicate to Commander Genda that the island has absolutely no idea of what is about to hit it. At 6 o'clock on the following morning, before the sun will have a chance to rise, the Japanese Imperial Navy will begin carrying out Yamamoto's devastating plan. The first wave of airplanes will take off from the fleet's aircraft carriers, and within 15 minutes, 183 of them will take to the skies, on their way to rain terror down from above. It's December 6th, 1941, in the North Pacific Ocean, minutes before midnight. Aboard the battleship Akigumo, Executive Officer Sadao Chikuza sits in his cabin, pen and paper in hand. He writes in his diary that, We are in the very day to which we have been looking forward so eagerly. Since he watched the fleet leave Hitokapu Bay two weeks earlier, Chikuza and the rest have sailed 3,000 miles across largely tranquil seas, with their submarines sailing ahead to ensure they wouldn't encounter any American ships. Chikuza was worried that U.S. planes patrolling the ocean might spot them, but none have flown overhead, and he thanks God for the good luck. By now, the fleet has received final permission to attack Pearl Harbor. Many of the men, including his officers, cheer when they hear the order has been given, but Chikuza conducts himself with stoic dignity. He has an older brother who works in a hotel in Hawaii. He prays that his brother will be spared from the destruction that Chaguza himself will be bringing. The following morning, just before 6 o'clock, Chaguza stands on the deck of the destroyer Akigumo. Temperatures on this side of the ocean are much warmer, so even at this early hour, he no longer needs his heavy coat and gloves. Like every other man on deck, he waits with anticipation to see the signal that will launch their attack upon America. Then, on the middle mast of the first aircraft carrier, a set of flags start to move up and down. This is the signal for the first wave of planes to take off. The men on deck are excited. The moment they've been preparing for is here. Jakuza watches as the first wave of planes fly into an inky blue sky. The sound of their engine sends a chill through Jakuza's spine. He watches with awe as the planes disappear into the sky on their way to initiate what he hopes will be the most violent and shocking aerial attack in the history of war. Next on History Daily, December 7th, 1941, the Imperial Japanese Navy commences its attack on Pearl Harbor. From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily. Hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham.
This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. It's December 7th, 1941, a warm Sunday morning at the Opana radar site on the northmost tip of Oahu Island, Hawaii. Two young Army privates, George Elliott Jr. and Joseph Lockard, sit inside a monitoring van designed to detect enemy aircraft. The two men are at the end of their early morning shift, and as usual, they've detected nothing. They're bored and they're hungry. A truck was supposed to have picked them up already to relieve them and take them to breakfast, but it hasn't come yet. While Joe gets out of the van to stretch his legs, George stays inside and fiddles with the radar equipment to pass the time. He puts on a headset and stares at the oscilloscope, a five-inch monitor which blips when a plane passes by. But there's been no blips at all, until George notices a sudden dramatic spike on the monitor, bigger than anyone he's seen before. George turns off the radio. He calls Joe in to take a look. George shows Joe the high spike and asks if he thinks the machine is broken. If it isn't, George explains, then this reading might mean that there are dozens of planes approaching the island, maybe 50 or more. Joe runs some checks to make sure the equipment is working properly and finds nothing wrong. According to their readings, these planes are 137 miles away and closing in at two miles a minute. Concerned, George picks up the phone. Hearing the details, the operator on the other end of the line tells George to stand by. Someone will call him back as soon as possible. So George hangs up, and he and Joe sit in silence, waiting. Minutes later, the phone rings. This time, Joe picks it up. An officer is calling to tell Joe that a dozen B-17 flying fortresses, American planes, are due from San Francisco from almost the same direction as the mystery blip. The officer assures them there's nothing to worry about. So George turns the music back on and goes back to thinking about breakfast. But that blip is not B-17s. It's a Japanese strike force, poised to launch a surprise attack that will change the tide of World War II and alter the course of history. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily.
history is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is December 7th, 1941, the attack on Pearl Harbor. It's Sunday, December 7th, 1941, just past 7 a.m. at Fort Schaffner on Oahu Island. First Lieutenant Kermit Tyler stands in front of a map on a plotting table at the Pearl Harbor Intercept Center. A young private approaches with some startling news. According to a call from the Opana radar site, a number of unidentified planes are approaching Hawaii fast. But Tyler's incredulous. He asked the panicked private to repeat himself. Tyler has been the officer in charge here for just two days. He has little experience, but he's confident that the two men at the radar site, George Elliott Jr. and Joseph Lockhart, are overreacting. He tells the private that a formation of American B-17 bombers are scheduled to come in from the mainland today. He's certain that that's what's making the radar jump. His message to Joe and George is, don't worry about it. Less than an hour later, at 7.52 a.m., a 21-year-old sailor named Lauren Bruner has just woken up. He stands in front of the small mirror in his cabin and gets ready for what he hopes is a beautiful Sunday morning. Later today, he has a date with a girl named Nikki, who he met last week on the beach. Excited, he puts on his best civilian clothes and brushes his teeth. Like many servicemen in Pearl Harbor, Bruner spends most of his free time on the beach with friends, wearing Hawaiian shirts, drinking rum cocktails, and chatting up the local girls. He was born in Olympia, Washington, and by a nice coincidence, his best friend from high school, Billy Mann, also serves on the same ship as he. The USS Arizona is one of the eight battleships currently at dock in Pearl Harbor. When Bruner was first assigned to the Arizona, he was awestruck by the enormous ship and its powerful triple-gun turrets. He and Billy Mann were originally part of the deck force, carrying out menial tasks like painting, sweeping, keeping things shiny. But Bruner has now risen to become a fire controlman in charge of operating one of the 50 caliber guns. But there's no work at the guns today. It's a Sunday, and Bruner's looking forward to his day off. As Bruner makes his way along the deck to the ship's chapel, someone grabs him from behind. It's his best friend Billy, horsing around as usual. In many ways, these two sailors are lucky. Throughout their young lives, they've never seen the violence of war. World War I was before their time, and even though World War II is raging, the United States has remained neutral and stayed out of the fight. So for Bruner and Mann, what's about to happen is inconceivable. They don't even notice the dull roar, the low rumbling. But they do notice the sudden sharp announcement over the ship's loudspeaker. All hands on deck. All hands on deck. Man your battle stations. This is not a drill. The two sailors share a concerned, confused glance, then dash off in separate directions, ready to defend their ship. As they look to the horizon, low-flying planes swarm in the sky, firing torpedoes that skim through the water and smash straight into the side of two of the Navy's largest ships, the USS Oklahoma and the USS West Virginia. Explosions reverberate around the harbor as oil gushes out from the ships as if they were bleeding. Bruner quickly ascends the decks of the Arizona on his way to his gun turret, wondering who's behind this attack. On the fourth deck, he pauses and looks out at the thick cloud of buzzing enemy planes, darting in every direction, firing indiscriminately. Bruner sees they all have red circles painted on their sides, the sign of the rising sun. The planes are Japanese. Just then, one of them flies so close to Bruner that he can see the grin on the pilot's face as he releases a burst of gunfire. 
Bruner takes two bullets to the leg and collapses in agony. Bruner is not the first or only casualty. Over the next hour and a half, the relentless Japanese attack will continue. It will leave 2,403 people dead, another half that number wounded. 18 American ships, including five battleships, will be destroyed. And America's enjoyment of peace is shattered. It's December 7th, 1941, minutes into the attack on Pearl Harbor. Admiral Husband Kimmel, commander-in-chief of the United States Pacific Fleet, is at home enjoying a peaceful, quiet morning. He hopes to spend this Sunday on the golf course, but then the phone rings. Kimmel picks it up. A fleet duty officer on the other end of the line breathlessly tells him, the Japanese are attacking Pearl Harbor. This is no drill. Stunned, Kimmel puts down the phone and steps out of his Hawaiian home that overlooks the harbor. There, he sees the swarms of Japanese aircraft and the destruction they are bringing to his fleet from every direction. A neighbor joins him in the yard, dumbfounded by the catastrophe that's unfolding before their eyes. When the neighbor looks at Kimmel, she notices that his face is as white as his uniform. Many of the U.S. ships have already sustained damage. The USS California, USS West Virginia, but it's the USS Oklahoma that has suffered the worst damage so far. The ship is completely overturned in the water, and hundreds of men are trapped inside as it continues to sink. Further along in the harbor, on the USS Arizona, Lauren Bruner crawls along the deck, his wounded legs dragging behind him. He fights his way through the pain to reach a turret gun. But before he gets there, he sees more Japanese bombers closing in on his ship. Just as Bruner reaches the turret, these bombers release their payload. One of the Japanese explosives, a 1,700-pound bomb, smashes into the ship only feet away from Bruner, crashing through the deck and falling three decks below, where Bruner's best friend, Billy Mann, is stationed, and where the bulk of the Arizona's ammunition and explosives are stored. The resulting explosion shakes the entire harbor, as a tremendous fireball reaches up a 1,000 feet into the sky. Moments later, flaming pieces of an exploded battleship rain down around the harbor, and the oily water surrounding the other ships catches fire. Inside the Arizona, over a thousand men are dead, killed instantly by the blast. But Lauren Bruner is still alive. He and a handful of shipmates hang on to the forward mast as the ship starts to sink. Smoke fills their lungs. The heat of the fire burns their skin, and Bruner is sure that this is the end. But through the smoke and flames, Bruner sees what might be a small repair ship moored to the Arizona. He and his shipmates call out for help. On board, a young sailor sees Bruner and his mates. He's just been ordered to cut the lines between the two ships because the Arizona is sinking. If he doesn't cut them fast, his own ship might go down with her. But the sailor defies his orders and throws Bruner and his shipmates a rope. One of Bruner's shipmates ties it to the Arizona's mast. Then Bruner and the others on the Arizona take turns crawling the 100-foot distance to the repair ship over flaming, treacherous waters. Bruner watches several men make it across alive, but when it's his turn, he fears he doesn't have the strength. He's in severe pain, shot twice and burned badly. But Bruner has no choice. He grabs the rope and starts crawling. When he reaches the repair ship, he will be the second to last person to escape from the blazing ship. His friend, Billy Mann, is not one of them. Then, at 8.55 a.m., 
a second wave of Japanese planes appears above the harbor to strike targets the first wave missed. This second wave no longer has the element of surprise. By now, all across the harbor, U.S. sailors and Marines have overcome their initial shock and begin firing back from the decks of the remaining vessels. On the light cruiser of the USS Helena, the commanding officer is impressed by the admirable behavior of his men under such extreme circumstances. He will later write, To point out distinguished conduct would require naming every person I observed. The bravery and valor of the U.S. servicemen caused the second wave to miss the majority of their targets. And just 90 minutes after the initial strike, the heinous assault is over, and the Japanese fighter planes disappear from Pearl Harbor as fast as they came. The damage is immeasurable. In that short time, they sank five battleships, including the USS Arizona. Over the years, a number of the other stricken ships will be rescued and rehabilitated, returned to active service. But the wreckage of the Arizona, and those who died serving in her, will remain at the bottom of Pearl Harbor forever. Thorin Bruner survives the assault, despite his two gunshot wounds and burns covering 70% of his body. He will go on to live a long and full life. But decades later, on December 7, 2019, Bruner will return to Pearl Harbor and be reunited with his fallen shipmates. It's December 7, 2019, at the Pearl Harbor National Memorial. A small group of U.S. Navy divers stand on a bridge that floats above the wreckage of the Arizona. They have gathered to lay to rest the ashes of a fallen sailor. Lauren Bruner passed away on September 10, 2019, a few months shy of his 99th birthday. Before his passing, he asked to be interred within the wreckage of the Arizona, where so many of his fellow seamen including his friend Billy Mann, met their end. Following a private family funeral, Bruner's ashes were taken to Pearl Harbor for a ceremony in honor of his life and career. Solemnly, divers enter the water and take Bruner's ashes down to the rusted wreck where he is laid to rest at the same gun turret he operated all those years before. But throughout his life, Bruner didn't talk much about Pearl Harbor. He once said, I do not want to further discuss the actual attack. It was truly hell on earth. The horrors of what I witnessed on that morning have kept me from sleep for many years after. I choose to face the future and not let my past dictate what might be ahead. Bruner did leave Pearl Harbor behind, living an eventful life. After recovering from the wounds he received in service of his country, he was awarded the Purple Heart and then continued to fight in World War II, taking part in eight more major battles in the Pacific. He retired from the Navy in 1947. And years later, Bruner worked hard to ensure that the young sailor on the supply ship, who saved his life by defying orders, was awarded the Bronze Star, one of the nation's highest honors. When asked why he chose to be interred in the hull of the Arizona, sunk on this day, December 7, 1941, Bruner once replied, All my family and friends have been buried in cemeteries. After a while, nobody pays attention to them anymore. I hope that a lot of people will still be coming to the Arizona. I would be glad to see them. Next on History Daily, December 8, 1941, President Franklin D. Roosevelt delivers his Day of Infamy speech, setting the course for America to enter World War II. From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily, hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. 
December 7, 1941, one day before President Franklin D. Roosevelt addresses Congress and the nation. At a submarine base overlooking Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, Admiral Husband E. Kimmel, the Commander-in-Chief of the United States Pacific Fleet, stares out the window of his office at the horror unfolding below. The sight of hundreds of Japanese fighter planes attacking his fleet has shocked him to the core. They appeared out of nowhere, firing torpedoes at his battleships, dropping bombs on his aircraft carriers, and peppering the air with machine gun fire. When Kimmel first learned that the U.S. was under attack, he was at his nearby home getting ready for a round of golf. But on learning of the devastation being wrought in the harbor, he immediately put on his uniform and quickly drove to the scene. Now, from his office on the submarine base overlooking Pearl Harbor, Kimmel and a handful of generals watched the carnage unfold. Just then, there's a massive explosion. Kimmel and the generals cry out in anguish as they watch the USS Arizona go up in flames. Kimmel feels like he's living a nightmare. He is responsible for this fleet, and he has failed to protect it. He reaches for the shoulder boards of his admiral uniform and rips off the four stars that indicate his senior rank. He feels he no longer deserves them. Just at that moment, the window in front of him shatters, and a fusillade of Japanese bullets miss Kimmel by a whisker, cutting his white uniform. A young communication officer dashes over to check that the admiral hasn't been harmed. Kimmel tells him that it would have been merciful had it killed him. The surprise attack on Pearl Harbor lasts just 90 minutes, but its impact will be felt much longer than that. As of earlier this morning, America was not in a state of war with Japan or any other country in the world. But as a direct result of this act of aggression, America's standing will change. Thousands of miles away in Washington, the President of the United States, Franklin D. Roosevelt, will soon make a declaration of war before Congress. His words will not just alter the direction of the Second World War, but they will also be remembered as one of the greatest speeches in American history. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily. History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is December 8th, 1941, President Roosevelt's Day of Infamy speech. It's December 7th, 1941, at the White House in Washington, D.C. It's 1.30 p.m., just hours after the attack at Pearl Harbor. At his desk, the 32nd President of the United States, Franklin D. Roosevelt, or FDR as many people call him, sits in his wheelchair. He smokes a cigarette and discusses the ongoing war in Europe with his foreign policy advisor, Harry Hopkins, his main liaison with British Prime Minister Winston Churchill. World War II began over two years ago in Europe when Nazi Germany invaded Poland. Great Britain and France responded by declaring war on Germany, and before long, all of the world's major powers entered the conflict, except the United States. Prime Minister Churchill has persistently pleaded for America to join the fight against fascism. But so far, America has offered only diplomatic support. Roosevelt has publicly stated that he wants to ally with Britain and Russia against the Axis powers of Germany, Italy, and Japan. 
But as President, FDR knows that he cannot declare war without approval from Congress. Today, the President and his advisors discuss just how obstructive Congress might prove. Suddenly, Navy Secretary Frank Knox bursts into the room, startling the President and his advisor. They can tell by looking at him that something is terribly wrong. His face has turned the color of ash. Knox tells the astonished President that the Japanese have just attacked Pearl Harbor. He tells him that 16 ships, including five battleships, are damaged or sunk and that thousands of people, sailors, marines, and civilians, have been killed or wounded. Roosevelt is outraged. As far as he's concerned, Japan has not made an official declaration of war, which means that every serviceman who died at Pearl Harbor has been murdered. He demands to speak to Admiral Kimmel, the commander-in-chief of the United States Pacific Fleet, so he can learn more about this heinous act. Elsewhere in the White House, the First Lady, Eleanor Roosevelt, hosts a luncheon for some important dignitaries. Since her husband first won a seat in the New York State Senate back in 1911, Eleanor Roosevelt has immaculately performed the social duties of a political wife. And although she is widely admired for her diplomatic skills, she finds events like these tedious. And today, she's having a hard time concentrating on the task at hand. Through the door, she can see various White House aides scurrying about, looking panicked, even frightened. She can tell something big is happening. So she gracefully makes her excuses and glides out of the room on her way to see her husband. When she finds him, FDR is on the phone with Admiral Kimmel, surrounded by a group of advisors who look on in stony silence. Not wishing to interrupt her husband, she turns to one of the advisors and asks what's happening. He doesn't respond. Instead, keeps his eyes fixed on the president. Then Eleanor hears her husband ask about Japanese fighter planes and the state of the fleet in Pearl Harbor. She begins to piece the catastrophe together. After 36 years of marriage, Eleanor knows her husband better than anyone alive. They were still children when they met. And over the long years since, she has developed an expert sense for how FDR feels at any given moment. As he finishes his call and hangs up the phone, she can tell he is incensed by the surprise attack, even though his outward behavior displays, in her later words, a deadly calm. For the rest of the day, FDR conducts himself with steady efficiency. He consults with military advisors and deals with the media. Later in the afternoon, he receives a call from Winston Churchill in England. The two leaders have had a fractious relationship. When Churchill was made prime minister last year, FDR told one of his advisors that Churchill was the best man England had, even if he was drunk half of his time. FDR hopes that Churchill isn't drunk now, as he confirms what the prime minister has heard about the Japanese attack. The Englishman sounds sober and serious as he offers America his condolences. And then Churchill remarks, Surely America must now enter the great war that's being fought in Europe and Asia. Japan is an ally of Nazi Germany. And so, as Churchill succinctly puts it, we are all in the same boat now. FDR assures Churchill that yes, this means war. America will enter the fight against the Axis powers. Tomorrow, President Roosevelt will deliver those exact sentiments. He will appear before Congress and deliver a speech that will define his presidency. He'll speak of the terrible injustice that has been inflicted on his neutral country and then declare that America is neutral no longer. It's the evening of December 7th, 1941 at the White House. President Roosevelt sits in his wheelchair at his desk. 
As he holds a pen tight in his hand, he can hear a crowd of people gathered outside the White House gates singing God Bless America. Their voices remind him of why he is writing this speech and who he is writing it for. The people of America need to hear from their leader tomorrow. He knows his words must be both decisive and considered. When he addresses Congress, his country, and the world, he will declare war upon Japan. He needs a speech worthy of such a historic moment. But so far, he's only written one line, and he's not sure if he even likes that. He leans back in his chair and reads it back to himself aloud. He begins by describing December 7th as a date which will live in world history. He crosses it out, feeling he can surely come up with something stronger. Since learning of the heinous attack on Pearl Harbor, even more shocking events have unfolded around the world. The president was informed that Japan has also invaded the British colonies of Hong Kong, Malaya, and Singapore, as well as the Philippines. These facts speak for themselves. Japan has undertaken a surprise offensive extending throughout the Pacific. The president sets down his pen for a moment and lights up another cigarette. As he smokes, he again considers Japan's unprovoked assault on Pearl Harbor and finds it as bewildering as it is enraging. According to his military advisors, their plan was somehow to knock out the entire United States Pacific fleet in one devastating blow, leaving America unable to retaliate. He exhales a puff of smoke as he considers the audacity of the surprise attack. Even more outrageous, FDR feels, is that Japan, a country that often boasts of honor in war, has not yet issued an official declaration of hostilities. And yet, considering the many thousands of miles between Japan and Hawaii, it's obvious to anyone that this was not some spontaneous action. It was planned for weeks in advance, at the very least. Extinguishing his cigarette, the president again grabs his pen and returns to the speech. Roosevelt is confident that as a leader, he is up to the challenges that war will bring. He is in the middle of an unprecedented third term as president of the United States, and he has already steered his country through some extremely difficult times. When he first took office in 1933, America was in the grips of the Great Depression. During his inaugural address then, he assured the people that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. He promised to employ the same urgency to the crippling economic crisis that he would if we were invaded by a foreign force. Both those sentiments resonate with him as he crafts his speech now. So far in his presidency, FDR is broadly regarded as successful due to the proactive solutions he introduced to restore prosperity to Americans, a series of social programs that were collectively known as the New Deal. He also brought an end to prohibition, a divisive ban on alcohol that had resulted in so much violence and crime throughout the previous decade. But despite these achievements, FDR knows that the speech he is currently writing will be the only one by which his legacy will be defined. Fortunately, he thinks, one of the qualities he shares with Winston Churchill is a gift for oratory. At last, Roosevelt finishes his first draft and lays down his pen. Then he goes to bed, expecting that he will probably rewrite much of it tomorrow. Today has felt like the longest day in an already long presidency. But on the morning of December 8th, the president looks back over what he has written and is generally happy. It's quite short, but he hopes its brevity will lend it a power that a longer speech might lack. But he is still stuck on that opening line. With less than an hour before he is due to make his address, FDR will make a quick but effective alteration to his speech. He will remove that part about a day that will live in world history 
and replace it with a phrase that he hopes will better stress the depths of America's feelings. And soon he will appear before Congress and declare that when the Japanese launched their attack on Pearl Harbor, they made yesterday a date that will live in infamy. It's December 8, 1941, in Washington. President Franklin D. Roosevelt clears his throat before delivering his speech before Congress. He is situated behind a podium on which half a dozen microphones from all the major radio networks are positioned to catch his every word. Yesterday, December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The president explains that until now, America has been at peace with Japan, and that their government deliberately misled him into believing it wanted to remain that way. He then informs his listeners about the other attacks the Japanese Empire has launched throughout Asia. His speech is worded to inspire fierce patriotism and to stress that now is the time for America to defend herself. I believe that I interpret the will of the Congress and of the people when I assert that we will not only defend ourselves to the uttermost, but will make it very certain that this form of treachery shall never again endanger us. Then Roosevelt assures his people that despite the dramatic events of the previous day, America will be triumphant. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. Finally, Roosevelt concludes his speech with the part the whole world has been waiting to hear. I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. 33 minutes later, Congress declares war against Japan. With that, America officially enters World War II. His speech lasted just six minutes and 30 seconds, but attracted the largest audience in radio history. FDR achieved both an immediate and long-lasting impact with his simple and brilliantly considered piece of rhetoric, which went on to become one of the most iconic speeches in history. Next, on History Daily, December 9th, 1979, a commission of scientists declared that the scourge of the world, the infectious and deadly virus smallpox, has been eradicated. From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily, hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Audio editing by Molly Bach. Sound design by Misha Stanton. Music by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written and researched by James Benmore. Executive producers are Stephen Walters for Airship and Pascal Hughes for Noiser. 